How do you know what causes you want to stand for? What motivates you to speak up? And more importantly, what impact does it have on you and on other people? Welcome everyone to one more episode of Time to Come Alive. My name is Valerie Hope and I am your host. As usual, every week you have an opportunity to become even more conscious, more connected, and as a result, more creative by listening to interesting conversations with people who I admire and I learn so much from. And in just a moment, I'll introduce our special guest for today. But just a quick reminder, if you have not already subscribed to each episode, please do so by going to www.timetocomealive.com. And that way you'll get an email in your inbox whenever a new episode is released. And you can also subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube right below by hitting the subscribe button. And that way you'll get a notification anytime a new episode is um, published. Now I'll have you know that this is actually quite a special episode on many fronts. One is because is the hundredth episode of Time to Come Alive, 100. When I started this back in December of 2018, little did I know that I would meet some phenomenal people, have some wonderful conversations, and more importantly, found ways to tap into what makes me come alive too, which is having these amazing conversations. So tune in for more. There's there's, there's likely going to be a pivot after this. Not even sure what that looks like. I'm always looking for what makes me come alive next. So you'll be in on it as soon as I know. <laughs> but for today, we have a very special guest, one that I have had the pleasure of meeting and connecting with. It's been several years now. So Dr. Mark Rittenberg here, he and I have been ooh, friends. I'm going to call you a friend, Mark. For the last three years, we met when I went to the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute for training three years back. Mark is the founder and the, he's the godfather. He's the leadership evangelist. He's a soon-to-be author and has been all over the world really evangelizing and standing up for all things leadership. And uh, Mark, you've been such a wonderful role model to me and to many others, not only in our Berkeley community and, and our, our family, but also beyond. And I was so glad when you said yes, that you wanted to be on Time to Come Alive. Welcome to the show. I want you to go ahead and unmute yourself so we can hear you. Thank Welcome. You so much. Yay. So much. There we are. Hi. Good morning, Valerie. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm well. So excited to have you here. What else should we know about you? What should you know about me? Well, let me see. I am a human being. <laughs> and I think, I think that actually my, my life work really has to do with the fact that I, I consider myself probably the most flawed human being I've met. I mean, all these things have great, great qualities and great talents, but also I have so much to work on. And that the idea that I have all these different personal challenges uh, in my life to do with my interpersonal skills, to do with my work-life balance, to do with all those kinds of things. I feel that I am a treasure chest of skills and tools for other people because it's the work I have to do myself. Yes. Oh, I love that. We are here to learn what we are here to teach. 
So fantastic. Interesting. So flawed human being. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and Mark, first of all, I, I wanted to start off by saying you're one of the people who I've known, in my experience anyway, who is the most fierce, loving human being when it comes to something that you believe in. Not only do you have a sense of, of, of justice, right, but also in, in principle, but I don't hear it or see that as self-serving. I notice and hear you so much speak on behalf of others and in, in the service of others. So I just want to start with that and finding out more about where, where does that come from and how did that manifest itself for you? Wow, great, great question. Well, I mean, there are, you know, I think one of the easiest answers is, you know, being born in the 50s and being a, a child of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, we grew up very much with the values of one people, one community. Let's help each other. I even remember a song, you know, by the Jefferson Airplane, where the lyric was, you know, come on, people, you know, smile on your brother, you know, it's time to love one another right now. And we sang those songs in the streets of San Francisco in the summer of love, 1967. And that being at Berkeley as a student, um, my God, 50 years ago, even more, you know, our work at Berkeley, it wasn't really about classes, it was about social justice. It was about civil disobedience. It was about the war in Vietnam. So many, so many nights spent all night in the student union, painting posters, getting ready for the justice gathering, getting on the bus to Delano, California to protest the way that Mexican workers were being treated in terms of the great boycott, Cesar Chavez, all these people. And again, I was exposed to so many unbelievable people who in fact were pillars of justice. I mean, you know, beginning with, you know, President Kennedy, I remember when he spoke at Berkeley in the 60s, I was a little kid, but I still remember being in the Greek theater and all my friends and my parents and my neighbors and stuff, and just hearing these words come from this incredible man who said, ladies and gentlemen, we are here and this is our moment and we're going to build a whole new world together. And watching these strangers hugging each other, cheering, shouting four more years in 1962. Huh. And then of course that you know, terrible night. I can remember the date, June 6, 1968. And we're watching the California primary. And it's Bobby Kennedy. And he's at the Hollywood Ambassador Hotel. And everyone's smiling, everyone's cheering. And the last words I heard was, thank you, California. Thank you for the victory. And it's on to Chicago. And three minutes later, our lives changed forever. And then the shooting of Martin Luther King. And losing all of our heroes, losing all of our icons, losing all of the people that really meant a lot to us, but yet their teachings stayed with us and we carried on the journey. So to me, the sense of justice and the underdog 
comes absolutely from that very early Berkeley training and to actually stand up for the underdog and to stand up for those that are less fortunate than you. And there's always somebody less fortunate than you. And maybe they need you to stand up and give voice for their humanity, for their right to exist. So that's very, very much where all that, all that comes from. Mark, I guess that that was part of the, the water you swam in, right? In, in those early days in Berkeley and, and part, so, so it's such an integral part of the culture. But what was it about those messages? What was it about those particular icons and those heroes that moved you to take that type of action? Um, well, first of all, I actually saw that we were, we were making a difference. I saw that we were making a difference. Suddenly there are millions of us in the street marching, pushing people in wheelchairs, helping people who were blind go on the march. And we began to feel that we were actually changing the world. We weren't just changing the world on a political level. We were changing the culture. We were changing the whole way people were responding to each other. And there was a feeling of us. There was a feeling of we. It wasn't about me. And I'm a, if I even contrast, you know, the world then and the world to today, we went, you know, again, we went to university and we graduated with, I'm not sure we, we planned to ever get a job. I mean, I'm not sure that <laughs> even came up. It was something of... Finish, put a backpack on your back, and go see the world. And it was all very welcoming in those days. Sleeping in hotels in Amsterdam, Istanbul, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful places, you know, Prague, a dollar a night, and suddenly friends with the hotel owners. And there was a whole feeling that the world was redefining itself at that time and that we all matter and we're all connected. And I have to say that although we're in a very, very different era now, I'm still finding myself in many, many, many situations, particularly during the pandemic, that people are so willing anxious and grateful to create the power of human connection, the power of human connection. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone. I want to feel part of the greater good. And so that's very, very much the, the feeling of, of um, where we are in this last day of October, 2020, that I do feel that we're reliving a time in this country where people and in the world where where people are caring about people on a profound level and one could say yeah but 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 you can always say but but where's the positive energy where's the positive energy for what's actually really really going on so that's that's very much how i see it you, know, you mentioned that one of the things that really drove you was your feeling that you were making a difference. So for you, what difference 
was it that you wanted to make? What for you looked different than what you intended or began with? Well, the, uh, I mean, the, 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 the first big difference was, was, you know, finally the Vietnam War was over and it was living with us, you know, day by day. And, you know, you know, how do I stay out of this? How do I avoid getting killed? How do I not uh, support a war that has nothing to do with me or us and is wrong on all levels? Uh, it was amazing during the great boycott by not buying grapes at Safeway and Lucky and all these places and Caesar with his hunger strike where he could barely move. It changed the wages. It changed the living conditions. It all changed. Um, I believe in boycott. I believe in boycott when there's absolute gross injustice. And if we even look at the freeing of Nelson Mandela, that didn't happen for any reason other than the free world decided to boycott South Africa. We're going to boycott until you stop uh, treating black people, uh, the majority of people in the country, as third and fourth class citizens. This is not, this country belongs to everybody. It doesn't belong to a few people in privilege. And by isolating um, South Africa as a nation, ultimately Mandela was freed in the early 1990s. And the rest is history. And it's hardly a perfect country, but it's not, it's not anything to do with the level of discrimination and, and um, uh, uh, anger and, and uh, lack of decency uh, towards all people that it was in the days of the white government. Mm. So those are my proof that you know things can change and that things can actually become better if we stave the course. But the whole idea is to not give up. Don't give up. Keep going. Hubert Humphrey was a real hero of mine because I remember the speech he gave at San Jose State in the 70s when everyone had just felt there's no point, we can't change the world, we're failing. And he just said these great words from the man from Minnesota. He said, don't opt out, O-P-T, don't opt out. And they said, Mr. Vice President, what does that mean? He says, don't give up. I haven't given up. Don't give up. Keep at it. We'll get there. And again, uh -huh. I just absolutely subscribe to the power of hope and the power of love. And that to me, hope and love is the medicine the world needs now. And it's always needed hope and love and never be taken away from us. I appreciate that so much so that I made it my last name. I want to say <laughs> one of my absolute most cherished behaviors, hope is your beautiful last name. Gorgeous. <laughs> I inherit it from my father. So yes. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> you know, this is so interesting you're, what you're sharing because this, this idea of being able to take a stand to, to something and you mentioned you believing in boycotting and the impact that that has on people to reflect on what's the right thing to do 
and shift behaviors is, is very powerful. But I, I had a discovery myself yesterday uh, and it was, it was, it's a long story, but the short part of it was, I remember had a flashback when I was in seventh grade and I was living in Hawaii at the time. That's where my dad was stationed. And we were hanging out during one of the recess break times. And I usually <laughs> had a small group of other girls. We'd just hang out and walk around the school together. And I remember Brandy Whitesell was hanging out with me and a few others. Some other girl came over and started asking Brandy why she was spreading lies about her. And there was some rumor, you know. And next thing I know, this girl takes Brandy and body slams her into the concrete oh. and a fight breaks out. I froze. I didn't know what to do. So Brandy, if you're out there and this is still in your memory, I am so sorry. I had no idea what to do in that moment. But what I realized is that Although I have strong conviction and I have hope and love and the power of human connection, all those things, that there was a moment in time where I didn't know how to opt in. I didn't know how to opt in. Yeah. So my question to you is, when you look back at your life and the things that you opted into, what was the driving force? Like, what did you see or do that had you go, this is something I'm going to stand for? Great, great question. And I have been on the same journey. There were times I didn't stand up. And I absolutely hated myself for not doing that. Things that I saw that were wrong. And in writing my book now, which I'm in the middle of leadership is love, the power of human connection. I am looking at stories in my own life uh, to do with bullies and people that were bullied. And I was bullied, but not as bad as other people. And I saw people bullied and I was telling a friend of mine over the weekend about a, a young man named Frankie Kinsella. I mean, I haven't seen Frankie in 60 years and I hope he's still on the planet. And I just remember Frankie, very positive, um, great singer, great actor, had a lot of feminine characteristics. I assume he was gay, I don't know. But watching the boys in my high school absolutely take him down, make his life a living hell. And one day Frankie just wasn't there anymore. I don't know if they moved out of town. I don't know what happened. That's why I say I hope he's still on the planet. But it's those, those things, it's those moments of why didn't I stand up? And I don't think it's a case of punishing oneself. It's just the next moment that comes up where you need to stand up or you need to give voice. That's what's important. And I remember on my first trip, um, to Israel going as an overseas student when I was 20. And I remember standing in line at the airport for something. And there was a woman who jumped the line and everyone said, no, take you stand in line. You know, you can't jump the line. You can't cut in. And she was an Israeli woman. And I still remember the words that she said. She said, Ma nachnu, Aravim, what are we Arabs? 
And I went forward in my very broken Hebrew and tiny bit of, you know, Arabic, but most, but English. And I said, you don't say that. That's an ugly thing to say. That is a horrible thing. That's why there's trouble in this region. Because you say, what do we think we are? I said, I said, we are to live in peace and harmony. And they, the Arab people are our cousins and to treat them with family respect and to say, what do you think we are Arabs? What a horrible thing, shame on you. And she stood still for a moment and she actually turned to me and said, Aniku kach Eret, I'm so sorry. Atatudek, you're right. And so it's those kinds of moments. It's so important to stand up. It's important to stand up. It's important to intervene. It's important to not let things go. And again, growing up in the era of social responsibility, civil rights, civil disobedience, the training was amazing. I mean, it's kind of funny to think about now at Berkeley, which is a famous school and famous academics. I remember the teachers in 1970, one by one, coming onto the platform, you know, with long hair looking just like, you know, <laughs> you know, the Beatles, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Rolling Stone, this one guy, you know, John Evers, and he just said, ladies and gentlemen, I actually have nothing to teach. What you're going to learn out there is much more important. So just come here and just sign. It's the honor system that you're going to, in fact, spend the semester taking up the needs of a disadvantaged individual or disadvantaged family people that are less fortunate. And I want you to track in a journal everything that happens to this family and to these people and send me a paper at the end of the, of the deal. He said, and I'm going to give you an A because what could I teach you that would be more important than that? And again, I still you know, remember taking the bloody bus to San Jose because I couldn't afford a car. The bus from Berkeley to San Jose took me two hours. Uh, to, to tutor these young African-American kids who were failing. They were failing in school terribly. And I had to get there at like 2.30, so I took the bus around 10, and I spent three hours, and their mom was so grateful. You know, she made us all dinner. I didn't get back till midnight. But I remember coming home on that last bus from San Jose to Berkeley with such a feeling of well-being not about how wonderful I was, but about how wonderful they were. And that whenever I found myself committing the act of service to those that were less fortunate than me, I always got five times back, whatever that was. Mm. So this is to me what it's all about. We are one community. We are one community. And again, I, I have keep having these experiences in my life all over the world that I remember my wife and myself were in London just before Christmas several years ago, a few years ago, and we were looking for something nice to do. We had a free Sunday night. And of course, everything's dark in London, you know, <laughs> no plays Sunday night. 
And they said, well, there's a Christmas concert at the Royal Albert Hall. So, well, that doesn't sound like my scene exactly. He said, you may be surprised. So we go over to the Royal Albert Hall, this magnificent hall that like seats 8,000 people. And, and the bombings and the shootings in Paris had just happened like a few months earlier. And some other stuff had come down in Europe, Brussels. And we're in this hall. And they suddenly start to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. And in what I think of as emotionally unavailable England, muted England, everyone's taking hands. Mm. Everyone's singing. Everyone is singing and actually praying. And the feeling in the Royal Albert Hall that night with 8,000 people was we will not be defeated. We will not be silenced. We will, we will fight for freedom, no matter what it takes. So it's just that you never know where yeah. it's going to turn up. And this is why I keep encouraging my students, particularly at the business school, I said, don't just read business books. For God's sakes, read <laughs> novels. Read self-help books. Read about a country you've always wanted to go to. Go out to dinner tonight, you know, at a restaurant where you've never even imagined eating this food, like Ethiopia or, or Afghanistan, and get to know the people who run the restaurant. And it's and even in these challenging times, you know, the restaurants are serving food outside now, and we're all there, and the level of connection with neighborhood restaurants, neighborhood businesses, not the big people, not the rich ones, the ones who are just barely making it. It's a whole new level of connection of we're supporting our local person who's trying their best to make a living and their food's delicious and let's rejoice in that relationship. Well, I think you heard it here. Everybody find a place to go eat that is yeah. local, locally owned, locally run. <laughs> Thank you for that great, hit, Mark. It's a great a, weekend to start if you haven't done so. And it's a I good weekend that, to Valerie. switch it up. Yes. Let's talk. Yeah, call to action today. Yeah. And how. Take it right <laughs> right, right to action. But I'll just give you just one, one, one more real uh, quick one. Uh, part of my yeah. training, uh, at, again, I call it training at, at Berkeley. I mean, my God, it was talk about an out-of-the-box thing. Angela Davis, the whole gang. And... Um, I was in the last class of the late sociologist Carl Rogers, who created unconditional positive regard, do something good for people without any payback, without the expect of reciprocity, just somebody who needs something, a note, a smile, a gift, whatever. And his final assignment to us, and again, we didn't have very much money. He says, go across the Golden Gate Bridge, which in those days was 50 cents. And I want you to pay for you and the three cars in back of you. Are you crazy? I mean, I barely have enough to get through the week. Pay for them and watch what happens and write it up. So, well, here goes nothing. And there goes that $5. <laughs> Give it in. <laughs> and I look over on my right-hand side, and the windows are down from the two cars that I paid for, three cars in back. And they're yelling, thank you. And they're giving a high five in the air <laughs> and stuff. And I said, my God, just from pain for somebody's bridge toll, the idea that they they couldn't get over that somebody cared that much. So it really is about caring. And that, I mean, it really, really comes down to three things. It comes down to 
intimacy, it comes down to compassion, and it comes down to commitment. And I'm really looking at those three areas as a beautiful formula for the new leader. I love that. You know, two things came to mind when you shared this. One, it, I used to work with an organization called Up With People. And Great. Yeah, I know them. Us, yeah. And so we were, you know, traveling all over and I was part of this advanced group. We were sent to LaGrange, Illinois. We're driving around Chicago in this rental car. And it was like, you know, like uh, just the, the highways were jam-packed and the traffic was so slow. And we're jamming out to music in the car and we're in a great <laughs> mood. And you can feel the tension, all the cars are around us. And we started writing these signs. <laughs> it was so small. We weren't paying people's tolls, but we were writing on these signs. And we said, would you rather be walking <laughs> or, or smile and hug? <laughs> and it was so beautiful to just yeah. see a flash of someone's concentrated frustration turn into like soften and smile and exactly. eyes lit up and such a small act that we from the inside of our car were able to project outside so that that was the the memory that you brought back with your no, story but it's, it's so beautiful with what you just described from the up with people description it's basically the absolute gift that you gave the people the gift of appreciation the gift of compassion, the gift of empathy. I know what you're feeling. We're all feeling the same way. And suddenly, wow. my God, I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel mm -hmm. seen. I feel heard. All people are, are looking for. So many people have said for years, I feel invisible. I don't think it matters what I say. And they retreat into a very small life and personality and believe it doesn't matter that they're here or they're not. Mm. So we're you know, trying to turn all that around, yeah. Mark, tying that back to something you said earlier, I, I get the impression that, um, I'll, I'll share this anecdote. My, my younger brother, one of my younger brothers was a Marine officer many years. And one of the things he says is that in training, they train Marines to go towards the gunfire, right? Most human beings instinctively move away, but they're trained to go towards, not to go towards with some zeal, like you're gonna go and kill everybody, but really to discover and uncover what's happening and how can they take over and, and, and take over the situation. So what I get from what you're sharing, all these different examples is that you're a man that goes towards the gunfire. Absolutely. When you hear and see it. But for those people who feel that they are not seen and heard, that they don't matter, that they don't have that kind of voice or the education, or they didn't grow up in that environment, what, what wisdom, what advice would you share with them that enables them to uncover the courage that's needed, that compassion and that commitment? Beautiful question. My God. Well, first of all, although it sounds a bit cliche-ish, I mean, charity begins at home. What's going on at home? What's going on at home with the family? In other words and particularly during the times we're in right now, are you having family meetings? Family meetings for what it's all gonna look like when this is behind us and it will be behind us. I have absolute faith. This will be a chapter that we'll look back on where we learned a great deal. Um, so it's very, very much that. And uh, uh, one of my clients who 
said, you know, I'll try the family meeting. I think we're in pretty good communication, but I'll be glad to do a once around kind of Sunday lunch. So the sons were three sons, daughter, wife, there, happy family, works for the National Security Commission. And so he said, please say what's on your mind, the most important thing for all of us to hear. And so he started with his first son and his son's name Ron. And Ron said, okay, you know what, dad? You don't laugh anymore. Dad doesn't laugh anymore. And he said, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Well, what do you mean? He said, you're not here. You may be here physically, but you're not really with us. You're not really in connection. You're not really listening to your granddaughter when she brings home a beautiful painting. They were all sheltering in place. And she painted this painting in nursery school that was her grandpa. And you didn't even say thank you. And he said, in that moment of that family meeting, I changed my life. I said, I'm missing the movie. And I'm not going to miss the movie any longer. Well, if we take a look at the workplace, where let's face it, most of us are going to have to work for the better part of our lives unless we hit the big one on Powerball tonight. Um, I really get people to look at, am I in, and this is not my language, this is the language of, of our time. Am I in a toxic environment where my leader is unavailable, does not connect, does not care about my well-being or my family, just cares about the task? Or am I in a life-affirming environment where the leader and the, call it the culture of our team and our company is very, very much based on care for one another, compassion for one another, uh, positive energy for one another, and the good news I can tell you is that there are enough life-affirming environments around that may not pay exactly the same as you're getting now. There's always sacrifice, but you need to decide, who do I want to be at the end of the day? What do I want to be remembered for? Do I want to be in an environment where I'm not seen, where I'm not heard, where I'm not recognized, where I don't feel that I'm able to make a real contribution? Is that what I want to be remembered for, that I lived a life that didn't matter? I lived a life that wasn't there. And um, again, in writing this book with this great, great friend of mine, we were observing so many things where we were in the last five days where there were both life-affirming actions and actions where other people were shutting other people down. And my advice, my coaching to those that find themselves in a situation where they're not able to find their own voice when the time is right, it's time to move on because you're worth it. You're worth more than that. You are a treasure to the universe. We're all here for a unique reason. I don't believe anyone's here who's not supposed to be here. And we all have a unique 
contribution to make to the greater good. So that's how I see it. And I keep seeing it, Valerie. I mean, I am this instructor at Berkeley that teaches required classes. So in January, I'm going to have over 300 new MBA students from 19 different countries. I'm in heaven. 19 different countries, 300 beautiful young people who want to make a difference. That's what it is. And now I'm in the undergraduate school, soon to inherit another thousand students who want to make a difference. And I get to just tell you, this new group of leaders, 18, 19, my God, they're young enough to be my grandchildren. This group coming up, they care deeply about humanity. I just corrected their papers. And it's things like, Professor, thank you for helping me find my honesty, my vulnerability. I've been wearing a mask my entire life. And I never dreamt I'd come to a class at Berkeley where I could take the mask off and be myself. I'm feeling so free. I have so much more energy. I have such an appetite for learning. Thank you for creating the community. Well, I didn't do anything. All I did was I just taught the class. But they are being so loving to each other and so caring, even more on Zoom than live, because we know that we can't reach out and touch. We can't give each other a hug. So there's even more effort towards really being kind. You know what's so fascinating about this? I don't, I'm not a huge into astrology type person, but <laughs> I've heard a lot and I, I'm an Aquarian. And so we have very idealistic <laughs> point of view. But one of the things I've heard a lot is that we have been shifting as a, as an, um, as a world, as, a, as, a, as humanity, shifting from what they call the Piscean age, which is command and control, secrecy, and moving into the age of Aquarius. And that age of Aquarius is about freedom. It's about brotherhood, it's about love. And that's what you're describing. We have a new generation of people coming into not only the workforce, but to community, to into leadership roles who are embodying some of that, that love and freedom and, and, and the brotherhood. Now, what I'm curious about is, you know, you're a man of a certain age, Mark, and <laughs> you've lived in a certain time in your oh, yeah. life, right? There's, there's an era that was marked distinctly by all the movements that you explained earlier. We live just in the last 10 months, <laughs> right? in the last nine months, let's call it that, that has completely turned upside down a huge swath of our global community. There's a lot of causes that one can get behind. Anything from social justice, racial inequality, you talk about the environment, I mean, the political scene, you name it, there's a cause. How does one, based on your experience, living in a time when there was also a lot of options, how does one discover where they want to have a voice? How does one rise to the occasion, walking you know, towards the gunfire wow. in an area that means something to them? How, how do we do that? Oh, God, such a beautiful question. I love that expression, by the way. I'll quote you. Walking towards the gunfire, that is so strong. It's such a strong image. Um, and to me, uh, it's, again, part of leadership is love. Find your passion. What are you passionate about? And we ask that question 
in a lot of our workshops. I'll be asking that question in my class tomorrow morning as they do presentations about their businesses and what it is they're passionate about, what their business offers to the world by way of product, by way of process, whatever, that in fact ignites our passion. What do you care about? What do you care about? Do you care about creating, you know, again, a device for diabetics so they don't have to prick their skin ever again and can always know what their sugar level is? Do you care about creating a situation for women where they feel they have the tools of empowerment to in fact get equal pay for equal work in those days? What is your passion? Are you passionate about being a teacher? Do you want to become a teacher? Do you want to become a teacher of small children? So to me, it's really about what are you passionate about and to have the courage to go towards that passion. And it brings us right back again, Valerie, to the power of human connection. Because if I can talk to one person and we can be peer coaches for each other, we can actually be there for each other and you can be my sounding board and I'll be your sounding board, there is a great chance we're gonna cross the finish line to our needs that we really, really need each other. We need each other. We can make a difference. I'll never forget being at an amazing conference in the 80s, um, the Black Association of Telecommunications Workers. Magnificent uh, conference. Just thousands and thousands of African-American um, telecommunications workers from AT&T and Southwestern Bell and the whole deal. And at the Sunday um, non-denominational prayer service, the message from the speaker was, as long as you have one person to lean on, I will be free. Doesn't matter who they are. It could be a grandmother, it can be a child, but there's one person in my life. I am not alone. And I have one person who will be there for me and I will be there for them. And that's the baby step to me. That's what it's all about, to not feel alone and not be alone. We have absolute colleagues and we have absolute friends and that we can be there for one another um, in the most amazing ways. Uh, real quick, a company I worked extensively with in South Africa, uh, which controlled the uh, railroads, shipping, airline, there was accident after accident on the train tracks all over the country. People were getting hurt, some were getting killed, until we instituted a really, you could say, cheesy program called I Am My Brother's Keeper, I Am My Sister's Keeper. And you're responsible for your brother and sister, no matter who you are. You might be the VP, you might be the CEO, you might be someone, we're all responsible for each other. And within 40 days, there were no more accidents. There were no more casualties because it's about taking responsibility for one another and the greater good. Mm. I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned leadership and love and this whole power of human connection. Yeah. Often when we have the word leadership, 
in the past, especially, the word love did not come. <laughs> no, <laughs> did, no. did not get even no. close to it, right? And mm. and if it did, it was usually a lawsuit in between. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but I, I, I want to hear more about what is it that you're seeing that makes that such an, uh, a force multiplier, right? When you have, when you bring those two together and when you have a program like I'm my brother's keeper, I'm my sister's keeper, which inherently is about loving and caring for one another. How does that inform these places who have really kept those two, not the, the idea of leaders and love pretty far apart? Yeah. How, do you, how do you reconcile that? Well, to me, it's again, it's all a choice. It's all a choice. And therefore leaders, leaders that love their people really love their people. And I'm observing a lot of meetings where people are not beginning in the old way of the agenda, but they're starting off. Let's just go around. How are we all doing? How are we doing during these times? What's going on at home? How's the family? The emotion in ordinary people that it's evoking. I can see that some people just by hearing the question, how are you doing? Um, they're almost ready to cry because nobody ever asked them that question and no one ever cared. And the idea that people are so much more appreciative, the power of appreciation, the power of acknowledgement, um, the power of apology, the three powers. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just finding that when the leader role models that as his or her authentic self, not the flavor of the month. And it takes me five seconds, five seconds to tell if it's the flavor of the month, maybe three seconds. But if it's real and they've really embraced the fact that we are all part of humanity, we're all members of the human race and we all deserve a decent life, a better future, to be safe and to grow ourselves. If the leader models that, it's gonna spread like wildfire and it's going to actually come out with team members treating each other the same way and them treating other people the same way. So to me, uh, these days, I'm not even willing to take a, um, a corporate contract if the top people are not modeling what I call loving behavior. Hmm. And by loving behavior, I again divide it into these three areas of intimacy, uh, passion and compassion and commitment. And I just heard yesterday from a wonderful man I interviewed I have a new coaching client and we're doing a massive leadership study to find out how we can be of help to this guy. And he said, it's, it's you know, very simple. He said, empathy is so important, but compassion is empathy plus action, right from the joy of happiness. And I'd read it, but it never went in. Yesterday, from this lovely guy I spoke to, it really went inside. So it's the act of empathy 
but it's actionable. And that to me is a big part of leadership is love. Mark, for those people who don't know you, don't have the benefit of hearing so many of your stories or sharing <laughs> the air with you, when you show love, whether it's a client, whether it's a project, whether it's family, what, how do you express it? What is your, what's your action that shows that you love and care for the people or the things around you? What's my action or? Yours. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think the, the, you know, first thing, again, from one of my mentors, I mentioned I had three women and the third one, Dr. Angelus Arian, um, who uh, passed away April 24th, um, uh, 2014, incredibly important person for me. And she was my coach for over 10 years. And what I really learned in that coaching program was, what does it mean to show up and choose to be present? What does it mean to really be present and not be all over the show, distracted, taking that phone call, talking on that phone when you're actually having a conversation with somebody else? Why is your phone more important than what's going on in this moment. And then the second one was to come from heart and meaning, to come from heart and meaning. Are you open-hearted or closed-hearted? Are you full-hearted? You're truly there. Are you strong-hearted? Meaning, can you give feedback, both positive and constructive, but in, from a loving place? From a loving place, do you love the person? And therefore I can tell you things that I see that you may want to take a look at in that way. And then truth-telling without blame or judgment, never blaming people, never being judgmental, never, never trying to never let your temper go over the top. Angie taught us this great thing. I said, what do I say if I'm really getting angry? And she said, sweetheart, just say, I've reached the height of my pissivity. And I said, my God, that's amazing. She says, and just add when they look at you with kind of very perplexed look, she says, just say, I don't trust right now what's going to come out of my mouth. So I'm going to take five. It's magic. Nobody gets hurt and I get to cool down. <laughs> and then of course, really being open to outcome. I mean, I've had the sort of life which has been full of joy and sorrow and like so many people I've, you know, up and down, life is not a dress rehearsal, life is not a bouquet of roses. And that I've really learned to be open to outcome, not attached to outcome. Don't write the last scene of the play before the play evolves with what is happening, you know, per, per se. And, um, and so that's, that's actually very, very much in terms of learning to be with people, I would say, I knew something before I met Angie, but once I met Angie, everything changed. And I was able to, in fact, get rid of my judgment. And I was able to become much more focused. Really important as the leader, if you really love the people, to focus and give them your time. 
and not mm. be resentful of the time they're taking. Yes. Yeah. My, my main love language is quality time. Um, and speaking of love, I know today marks a very special occasion. I'd be remiss if I didn't call out the beautiful wife, Ingrid Gafshan, who's also been a guest on Time to Come Alive, by the way, <laughs> is your wedding anniversary today. Thank you so much. Eight That's years. Eight years. Congratulations to you Eight both. Eight years. I'm going to put you on the spot, Mark. What are you doing about it? <laughs> what are you doing for this eight year anniversary what are you doing what's what's this we are doing we're gonna well sh she doesn't know it yet but we're gonna have a little walk up in the hills and I think she's watching so if it's a secret you may not want to share it <laughs> lovely, we're first of all gonna have uh a, a a swim at the claremont hotel that we got ourselves a little lane then we're gonna go from there up into the berkeley hills and go for a walk. And I think we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about our love for each other and talk about what the eight years has been and what we're looking forward to as we move forward into, into the next period. And we're probably going to have dinner and drinks with a friend who came to our wedding. It was a very, very beautiful ceremony. It was October 31st. Um, October 31st, 2012. And it was our second wedding. The first one was at Ingrid's sister's house um, earlier in the year and her dad was there. And But it was lovely that her mother came over for this ceremony, the, the civil ceremony, um, because we were living here and we wanted to help Ingrid's citizenship get along and so forth. But it was the day the Giants won the World Series. So we're at City Hall with 25,000 fans all cheering and leave it to San Francisco for everyone in City Hall to be dressed up for Halloween. If in this town, if you can dress up in a costume, <laughs> you're in a costume. So the Justice of the Peace was dressed like a witch and she was great. I now pronounce you husband and wife. It was so lovely. And it was, and this friend of ours, Vanessa was present, and so we're probably going to go over. Um, and again, it, it, everything is a story of re relationships. You know, IBM put an ad in the paper in 1968. I still remember Sunday, every Sunday, it said, in business as in life, it's all about re relationships. And this friend that Ingrid grew up with, it's from a very, you know, kind of upper-class family, but none of that mattered. What really mattered was that Ingrid's mother made the children beautiful sandwiches to eat at school. And this friend of theirs didn't have the beautiful sandwiches and was kind of buying her lunch at school. So Elaine Gafshon, Ingrid's mother of blessed memory, <laughs> sent along an extra sandwich for Vanessa. So she'd be as happy as her own kids. And Vanessa considered Ingrid's mother to be her second mother. Wow. So that's <laughs> the right person for us to go see. That's, that's the love that you have in life. That, oh that's phenomenal. Such a wonderful um, woman. Yeah. What, so as we close out in the last few minutes that we have together yeah. here, what else would you like to share with us? Oh my God, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> So enjoyed. We got we got ten minutes, Mark. <laughs> yeah. 
so enjoyed speaking to you. And I just want to just tell you, Valerie, you are somebody, I mean, you're, first of all, we already know as a graduate of our Kochi Institute, you're exemplary coach. I mean, it barely describes what you are. You are so outstanding, but you're also a natural teacher. And the natural teacher brings out the best in people. I had no idea what we talk about today. And <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> you know, leadership is love, the power of human connection, but just that. And uh, again, I was sharing with, with a friend about, you know, I'm telling a lot of stories in my book, a lot of stories. And although it's being written during the pandemic, I don't want it to be a book about the pandemic. That's not what I'm writing. But there's one story in almost the way a musician, uh, a composer writes a piece of music, they'll always write a coda at the end of it. And the coda for me is when Ingrid and I went just at the very beginning of the lockdown in Alameda County in Berkeley, a few cinemas were still open. So there was an old cinema on College Avenue, terrible seats, but we love it because they show the best movies and we're just, you know, in there. And it's a cold night. It's just the beginning of March, 2020. And there is a, a homeless man standing across the street from the cinema. So we parked the car and I'm looking at my wallet and I have a 20. I only have a 20. Said, well, that's got a, a little bit steep, but okay, come on. You're luckier than him. So just part with the 20. And I go over to him. I said, sir, please take this. And I'd like you to buy yourself a good, good meal. And he looked at me. He said, I don't know how to thank you, but I'm fine. I'm actually fine. You see the man standing to the left of the marquee by the Elmwood Cinema. I said, yes. She said, he's really hungry. He's really in a bad way. Would you take that $20 bill over to him? It would make me so happy. And it was as if my world opened up. I mean, I couldn't get over a homeless man dressed in rags on a freezing night in Berkeley, California, is passing on the money to his brother across the street to the left of the marquee. Mm. As we're about to see a documentary film. All I can tell you is my life changed forever. And so I'd like to, if I can, I just want to just really end with a quote because I think it's worth to live by. I mean, everyone who works with me knows that I'm obsessed with Nelson Mandela. I believe that he's the greatest, greatest leader that certainly ever lived in my lifetime, 27 years in prison with no hatred in his heart. I mean, my God, when Ingrid did a documentary film about, about leaders and interviewed President Clinton, and she asked President Clinton, Mr. President, who is Nelson Mandela to you? And he looked for a while and the Glasses came off and the blue eyes were shining like the Pacific. And he said, I could say personal friend. I could also say fellow statesman. But actually, Nelson Mandela is my spiritual teacher because he taught me not to hate. So I'll just close with the Mandela quote, which is what he said in 1995. He said, what counts in life is not the mere fact that you have lived.
counts in life is not the mere fact that you lived. It is what difference we have made in the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life we lead. So it's about others, my friend. It's about reaching out to others. It's about beyond yourself. And I am so proud to be in connection with you, a woman who is personifies beyond yourself, reaching out to others, and let us continue the journey for many more years to come. Ah, I receive that. Thank you so much, Mark. And I, you. I think you, know, you embody those qualities too. And I, one of the things I don't take for granted is that the passion that I feel for connecting with people. And, and although poor Brandy Whitesell back in seventh grade didn't have the benefit of my ability or my commitment in the moment, what, I, what that looks like today is being able to help people connect with one another, having conversations where people feel heard, seen, understood, and bringing those people that may have different points of view together in a place where their compassion can go. So that's the commitment I have now. It may not look like getting in the fight <laughs> or jumping into the middle of one, but, but in my own way, I feel like I'm getting closer to walking towards the gunfire in a way that creates safety for everybody else around me. And, and thank you so very much for your generous, your generous teaching, your generous, the, the guidance that you give, the wisdom that you share, the, the listening that you have for other people's greatness and the space that you leave for us to be able to rise up into it. So, so excited for those thousands of people who you have an impact on, well, you've had an impact on and that you will have an impact on in the coming year in school. And this book, what, what should we know about the book? When is it coming out? Oh my God. Well, let's put it this way. I'm gonna have it <laughs> in its first draft by the end of the year. And then okay. let's say that 2021 will hopefully be the year of the book. And I promise to send you one of the first copies. Okay, you're hedging a little, Mark. You're hedging, but okay. 2021. <laughs> we'll <say> 2021. <laughs> a year from now, the book will be okay. in a shining cover. I promise you. All right, awesome. We'll, we'll have the the debut of your book. Thank you again <laughs> so much, Mark, for being Thank a part you, of this Come Alive. And for those of you who have spent the last uh, nearly two years following this podcast, right? Like I mentioned, this is the hundredth episode. Who who better to end a hundred episode run with than, than you mark i'm but, so uh, honored so honored <laughs> uh thank you so much and and actually it doesn't even end here i have the the fortune of working with your wife with ingrid in the next episode to close out this experience where she'll be interviewing me which will be kind of um, great i'm gonna be on <laughs> i will be on camera to hear that one Thank you, so I'm interested. Yeah, I'm curious about discovering whatever there is to discover in the process. But thank you, Mark, so much. And thank you all for listening and tuning in and, and finding ways to come alive. Like, you know, the, the quote, and this ties so much with what you said, Mark, around passion. The, the quote that's really driven me and driven this podcast over the last two years has been by Howard Thurman, excuse me, by Howard Thurman. He says, don't ask what the world needs ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs are more people have come alive and so find that something 
and commit to it. That's, that's the call to action. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Mark, thanks once again. Go to www.timetocomealive.com if you want to subscribe. Not sure what future episodes you might get, but you definitely will see the library of the 100 episodes that have existed up to this point. And looking forward to whatever next iteration of living looks like. So thank you all so much for joining thank us. You so much. Thank you, Bye. Mark. Have a wonderful rest of the day, everyone. You too. Thank you.